0: Okay, let's see what you got. Let's see. Again, we're going to jump from this passage in New to Mark chapter 12 in just a moment. But this is a very, very, very important passage that Jesus refers to in Mark 12. And you and I, if we don't understand it, we're not going to catch what, what it signified to the Jews because they were more familiar with it with, uh, than we are. The author of it is who? king david okay david is when he's authoring this he is in his rule and reign so when he's speaking he's speaking as the king who and the terms he uses that's very important to understand it's david while he is a king um he's going to talk about one individual and he's going to describe this individual some of you already know who it is some of you are like i'm really not sure is he talking about himself a family member and so we lay that out and say okay who is the person he's talking about Okay, he is talking in this text. He doesn't know the name Jesus yet, but what is he saying? I'm talking about the promised, what title would we give him? Messiah, or the other title in the Greek? Christ, same thing. Okay, and so he's describing this individual who is predicted to come. This is one of the main messianic passages. passages of the Old Testament talking about the coming Messiah. You look at the text and how he describes the Messiah. And starting with verse 1, you read that it, it says the Lord. And by the way, look at verse 1. What, what do you notice about the two words Lord? Are they identical in the way that they're spelled? Yeah, the one is all capitalized, the L of the first one, which indicates to you what? Yeah, okay, now it's talking Yahweh, okay? Now we're talking the the proper, the personal name of God Almighty, that he's talking about his covenant name, the Lord Yahweh set unto my, and then what's your difference here? Capital L, small letters, it's the word Adonai. So Yahweh says to my Adonai, and by the way, just for your information, Adonai was also a name used at times for people in authority and or for God himself. Okay, so it's some type of an authority over David. That's the key that you want out of this text, is God is speaking and David is saying God is speaking to somebody who is over me. And that's where Jesus is going to make his argument in Mark chapter 12. That David, though he was a king, is calling this certain person who is Messiah that he was above David. What does he describe him as? What did you see in the text in descriptive of the coming Messiah as David predicted? Any characteristics, any traits from the text? What's that? He's going to be a priest. Okay? Anything else? He's going to be a king. By the way, you're a Jew. You're a Jew, and he's calling the king a priest. Is that normal? Were the priests also kings in Israel? No, no. In fact, they had to be two separate offices. But there was the predicted Messiah, and this makes him unique. He would be both priest and king. In fact, his priesthood would be after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, what else do you see about this man as a ruler? what's that? Out of, out of Zion, where's out of Zion? Jerusalem, he's going to rule out of Jerusalem Zion is the Old Testament, uh, the, the poetic term for Jerusalem, who's he going to rule over? it's stated several times in the text, who's he ruling over? okay, not just the Jews, he makes the other comment that he talks about like at the end of verse 6, over what? Okay, many countries. He's going to he's going to be through you know, striking down verse five kings plural. Okay. Um, this ruler, he's described as you go through that he's going to rule out of the strength. He's going to rule in the midst of his enemies. And he goes on and talks about the people shall be willing. He's going to be have a large following. They want him to be ruling. He's going to, he's going to be ruling in the sense of what is holy. He's going to be ruling for, with, uh, youthfulness. He has sworn he will not repent. He's going to keep his word. He's that priest at the right hand. He shall strike through the kings on the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the heathen. He's going to deal with judging people. He talks about the dead bodies, wound the heads or crush the heads over many countries. The idea he shall lift up the head or the rulers. He's going to overcome how many different rulers in the world? All of them. Okay. Is he opposed? Yes, he is. He's talking about that he has enemies. So he's predicting that when Messiah comes, there's going to be some opposition. And yet he is going to win the the final battle. He will have the final say. Keep that in mind with what Jesus does in Mark 12. That in this text, we're talking about this great ruler who's a priest, who's a king, but he is also very powerful. He will be opposed. But at the end of the opposition, who's left standing? the Messiah, the Christ. Now, with that in mind, let's jump to Mark chapter 12. And so the Jews would understand all those comments. So when Jesus quotes that passage, they have a full concept of what he's talking about, and yet they didn't make the application the way they should. Let's jump into Mark chapter 12, and let me set up the scene as I understand the scene, and you and your study, you may have a different twist to it, but I think this makes perfect sense. When Jesus on Tuesday comes and begins his ministry, and we're back into Mark chapter 11 already, when he starts in these arguments, if you uh, that day they remember they come and they start asking him questions, they challenge him, they challenge him about who should we pay taxes, who what about the resurrection, whose husband whose wife will this person be if she went through five husbands, uh, seven husbands, whose will she be in the resurrection? They um, they argue over what is the greatest command. They ask him that. Go back to the very first challenge that Jesus gets. It's in Mark chapter 11. This begins that whole account of him being challenged. And we read in Mark chapter 11 what happens here in verse 27. And they come again to Jerusalem, and as Jesus was walking in the temple, there come to him, the chief priest, the scribes, the elders. This is a beginning of the next chapter and a half of the arguments and the attacks of Jesus on Tuesday in a public place. And in this public place, they're trying to discredit Jesus before all the crowds. The day before, what did Jesus do in the temple? On Monday of his Passion Week. He what? He cleansed the temple. And so the next day, the leaders are challenging by, and they're going to ask the question, by what authority did you do what you did? And so they're challenging Jesus whether he has authority over the temple. Should he be able to be listened to? Okay, should you people in the crowd who are overhearing this conversation between the religious leaders and Jesus, they're trying to lay it out that the people shouldn't listen to Jesus because he doesn't have authority. So Jesus responds to that discussion. He responds to their other questions. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to tempt him. They're trying to make him look bad. But every one of those arguments that they cast at him, he turns it on their head. He he ends up challenging them. And who looks more like the buffoons? Not Jesus. And so this is the end of all of their attacks. Jesus then, at the end of all that discussion, he asks them a question. That takes us to Mark chapter 12. And I think the question ends up where that whole debate with those leaders started. Should or does Jesus have the authority? Does he have the credibility? Should the crowd listen to Jesus? They've been trying to undermine the crowd's attentiveness. They're trying to make Jesus look bad. And so Jesus, in verse 35 of Mark chapter 12, then Jesus answered while he taught in the temple. And now he's going to ask them a question in front of a crowd. And by the way, the crowd's there because look at verse 37. It says that the common people, they were excited, they were glad when they heard Jesus. So make these comments. So Jesus turns around, he's answered all their debate, and now he says, by the way, let me ask you a question. And I think the question has to do with his authority. He is going to ask them, how say the scribes that Messiah is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, we don't need to go any further than this one verse, by the way, to prove something. Jesus took and understood that the Bible was what? Inspired by who? the Holy Spirit. And so he's going to quote a passage from Psalms, which the, just, if we don't go no further with the text, Jesus has just confirmed the book of Psalms is from the mouth of God. But he goes on and he makes a comment. Did, he said, David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make your enemies thy footstool. That's verse 1 of Psalm 110. David, therefore, himself calls him, that is Messiah, Lord, and whence is he then his son? How is it that King David is calling his own descendant his Lord, That that is totally non-kosher? You wouldn't call, if you were back then, you wouldn't call your grandson your master. You wouldn't call him your Lord. You would be the Lord. You would be the superior because you are, by age, you are the authority. And so Jesus is going to be answering these guys. says, okay, I have a question for you. And he's going to be identifying himself in this text. And he said, uh, basically, okay, we're going to to twist it this way. We're going to put it this way. How are we, how is the crowd to view Jesus? That's where he's driving at. How should these people standing here view Jesus? From Jesus' point of view, he's going to say, this is how these people right here, they should view me, number one they should view me as David's descendant, as David's descendant, that I am the one who is the promised one that David talked about in Psalm 110. And as he's quoting this text, he's making it very clear that he is going to be the one that's, that was promised. Now, we all know this. We all know that 2 Samuel chapter 7 was when God promised that David's son, his long, long-line long descendant is going to rise and be the king and have a throne over Israel for how long? forever. Okay, so he's referring to this, saying, you all know this passage. You all studied this in your Sabbath schools. It talks about the Messiah, and that you're questioning who I am. You're questioning what I have done. He says, well, I am a descendant of David, is his implication. You should listen to me, because I have royal blood in me. I should get your audience, your attentiveness, just because I'm that descendant, and you should honor me. Now, he's going to be making this implication that I am David's son I am the one who's here in fulfilling this text that I have enemies around me that I'm going to be the judge later on did anybody anybody in Jesus's ministry in the last few weeks prior to this exact account did anybody consider Jesus the son of David do you remember blind Bartimaeus Go back in, that, in, in the passage just a few chapters before. Remember when Jesus comes in Mark chapter 10, in verse 48, when he comes into that area of Jericho, blind Bartimaeus says, Jesus, thou son of David. Just a few weeks before that, when we're in Mark chapter 8, or maybe we should make the comparison of Matthew chapter 15, when Jesus was farther north, the Syrophoenician woman says, please heal me, or heal my family. Jesus, thou son of David. Do you remember what they're going to say on what they what they did say? I'm sorry, just two days earlier. Hosanna in the highest, and they talked about him being the son of David. And so here you have indication that up to this point, quite a few people were already calling Jesus the Son of David, the Son of David, the Son of David. Where did they get that from? Where does that come out of? Second Samuel chapter 7, Psalm chapter 110, That they, that they were recognizing Jesus was the Messiah, he was the descendant of David, and he is going to be saying to them, in essence, we're confirming this right now, and the irony is... The crowds here just cheered that he was the son of David here on Sunday afternoon when he came in on Palm Sunday. But the people who were the most um, well-versed in Scripture, the scribes, they're denying it. They're denying it. So Jesus is making this very clear. He is saying, okay, you you wonder what authority I have. I have the authority that I'm the son of David. I'm that promised one. I am a human being, a real person, like was predicted. I am of that royal blood, which was proven in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. He says that here I am. You should be listening because of who I am as the son of David. But you should be listening to me for another reason because of who not only that I'm a descendant of David but I'm David's Lord I am David's Lord. And he quotes that where he says, David himself called him, that future one to coming, called him Lord. Why would David do that? Because David knew that his future descendant, the one who would come in his blood, the one who would come as the promised one, that he was uh, exalted above King David. That he had greater authority than David had. That God himself would even say to him, The Lord God would say to His Lord, "Here, sit thou, sit on the throne of the right hand of God Almighty. You are exalted above David, your great, 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 great grandfather, because you are going to sit at the right hand of the throne of God." And so David uh, would would acknowledge that. Jesus is saying, "David, King David, he acknowledged that when I come, I'm going to be His Lord. He called me the Ananias. So how do you respond to me? Well." I'm, I'm the king in the kingly line. You should respond the way King David did. King David, your ancestor, called me his Lord. And then he goes on by virtue of the next uh, phrase that he quotes. He says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit on my right hand, Till I make thine enemies thy footstool. Why did he quote that portion of this passage? Don't say it's because it was the complete of the verse 1 from Psalm 110. They didn't have complete verses. They had phrases. They had no verse 1, verse 2 back then. But Jesus gets the concept from Psalm 110 that when Messiah comes, he's going to have opposition, but what will he do with the opposition in time? He would beat the opposition. He would overcome. So you're the disciples, you're listening to Jesus, and you're watching Jesus in the temple. Does Jesus have opposition? Yes. What are they trying to do to him? They've made it public. They're trying to kill him. They want to get rid of him. And this week they're going to hire um, Judas. They're going to proceed even further. But Jesus is saying, in this, and I think this is where he's going with this conversation, is you people should listen to me rather than listening to these leaders because I am of the kingly line of David, because I am the son of God, the one that's been exalted, I have that relationship as God's own son, which he's claimed time and time and time again. And David recognized me as his Lord. And because I'm going to be the judge. I'm going to be your judge. I'm going to be the one who's going to be your king. Because I am going to overthrow all the rulers of this earth. And the opposition that these men give me right now, and and by the way, think this through. If you're his disciples, and you're listening to him, do you think this verse has some hope for you come next week when Jesus is dead? That Jesus is implying, I'm going to overcome my enemies? By the way, just to throw it out to you, do you know what passage that Peter quotes on his first message? He quotes this very text to identify that Jesus is the Son of David, he is exalted at the right hand of God, and he will judge who? All of you who put Jesus to death. So here he is, Jesus is declaring that I am the judge, I am the king, I am the descendant of David, I am the one whose God himself will exalt to the right hand, therefore by what authority do I do the things in the temple? By the authority given to me, by my ancestry, by my heavenly father, by the fact that I am going to judge you, and you people are going to answer to me, and let's make this this application. Do we today, will we one day answer to Jesus Christ? The answer is yes. How many knees will bow to him one day? All knees, all knees. Every one of us is one time we're going to fall before Jesus Christ. The big question of this entire passage is who is Jesus? And he is making it clear I am the predicted one, I am the promised one, I am in that kingly line, I am your judge, I am going to be the one who will rule over the earth. And we need to respond that way. We need to be smarter than the scribes and the Pharisees and not reject Christ because of our religiosity. But we need to respond. Now watch the people's response. Jesus finishes up his question very simply. And he said, why did David therefore call him Lord and when when he's his son? Because he's exalted above David. We've already mentioned. And the people as a whole, what is their response as they've listened to this conversation? Just brief. That's just gone by. What does your Bible say to most of the people listening? What do they do? They heard him gladly. Okay, they respond with delight with what Jesus said. Why? Why are they excited about what Jesus just said? Is it because he has just bested the Pharisees and they're getting their, you know, what's coming to them? That could be it. That could be it. Is it because, is the implication of that phrase that they were delighting in what Jesus said, is it because they enjoyed listening to Jesus preach? and how he would take Old Testament and make it real and alive and use scripture properly compared to what these religious teachers, that is a truism. Okay, Many said, no man is this a possibility that these people finally as a group, they're what? They're starting to get it. They're starting to understand this Jesus is somebody different. This Jesus is not guilty like these Pharisees and scribes have been saying. This Jesus is handling the word of God. This Jesus is fulfilling the word of God. Maybe some of them are starting to agree with what Peter said. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And so the seed, you know how it is sometimes when finally you, something starts ringing. Some of you have been through this. Before you prayed and got saved in actuality, the bells were starting to ring. It was starting to click. And all of a sudden you were better understanding, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, And it finally culminated with you calling upon Christ as your Savior. That may have been the case with these people. That the seed was now catching their heart. The Spirit of God was working. And it's going to come to fruition that on Pentecost, they're going to make their profession of faith. And so Jesus is speaking to them. But he doesn't stop remember in front of these people who are starting now to receive, to listen, to believe what Jesus is saying, they have some opposition. Do you remember how the Word of God says Jesus had predicted that whenever the Word of God is out there and it's starting to be received, what does Satan do? He snatches away the word of truth. And so Jesus is going to respond and just say, oh, by the way, let me me throw something at you. How should you respond to me? How should you view me? You should view me as the descendant of David. You should view me as the son of God who will be exalted. You should view me as your judge, your king. How should you view these guys? Because in the next few days, in a few weeks, these guys are going to put the screws down on you not to believe what I have said. They are going to start persecuting. They They're starting to put pressure. They're gonna start denying what I have done. I am gonna rise up. He's already predicted he's gonna die, and in three days he's gonna rise up. And what do those religious leaders say when Jesus rises up? Come the following weekend? What do they say? What happened? They stole the body. So you're going to start hearing different stories. And so what should you think about these religious leaders? Look at the phrase, how it goes right together. He turns and says, oh, by the way, beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and they love salutations. And so basically he is telling them how to view the religious leaders. How do you view the Jewish leaders who have up to this point held them in bondage? Who have up to this point been keeping them an enslaved people from truth? And he's going to describe these people in a very harsh turn. He's going to basically say, hey, listen, beware of these false teachers. And he points out why that they are so dangerous. Why the people shouldn't listen to them Because of what they do. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off differently. Because of what they're like, because of what they do, and because of what will happen to them. Notice how he describes what they're like. He says, these are individuals that when it comes to their religiosity, when it comes to their faith, what do they enjoy? Do they enjoy being honest and upright and serving the Lord and serving other people? Uh-uh. He says, these scribes, the ones standing right here who have been attacking me, what do they love? They love to go about in what? Oh, these long robes. Now understand that back in Bible days, the Pharisees as a whole wore very bright white outfits that would distinguish them. And they would love to be in the flowing. Do you remember watching your kids or when you were a little kid, the dress-up times? We have a closet in the basement. It's our dress-up closet. And the kids, all of a sudden, they become different people when they get dressed up at times. When they put on, you know, Wonder Woman, it's amazing what they think they can do. Okay, when they put on some, some costume of some royalty, it's amazing how they act. Well, people in outfits and in uniforms, all of a sudden sometimes that changes the way that they act. The Pharisees, when they would put on their outfits, man, they would think that they are the hot dogs of society. And they were because of the pressure they put on people. But they would come in, and they'd have these long, white, bright white clothes that distinguish them from anybody in the crowd. And then what happens? It says they love something else. Not only do they love to be seen and distinguished from other people, what else do they love? And it goes right together with it. The recognition. They love the salutations. If you were a Jew living in back in that day, whenever you would see one of these Pharisees or one of these scribes coming by you, in their beautiful, white, flowing garments, you know what you were supposed to do? You were supposed to stand. You were supposed to stand and give them recognition. Even if you were in the middle of your business and you saw them walking by in the main street, you were supposed to give them some form of recognition. Why is it that they wanted that? Why is it that they crave that? Why is it that these individuals wanted the attention? They wanted the power. They wanted the publicity. They wanted the accolades. Because they weren't people who were ministering, but they sought to be ministered unto. And so he goes on, describes these individuals, that they loved the salutations. And what else did they love? The next verse. They loved a certain seat. What is the, the chief seat? And there's two places he says they loved the high seat. They loved it in what places? The synagogue, number one. This is the church setting. Let's say this is a synagogue. So in that ancient synagogue, there would be in this area right here, we would have, and this is commonly from archaeology, we know this is true, what they would have is embedded right here in the wall, they would have what scrolls they had of the Old Testament. And right before them, they would have these seats like we have up here, And these seats were given for the Pharisees, the scribes, who would sit here during the service. And as preaching was done, they were to sit there and people were to look at them. And they were to marvel. They were to be amazed. And they were to say, oh, he he is the example of everything we're hearing. He is the model for us to strive to do whatever they're teaching. That these individuals were put on the platform as an example to everybody else to follow. Well, if you were publicly said, hey, whoever sits up there, you know, you want that seat? Because that means everybody's going to look up to you. You're going to be our example. What would human nature say? Do you want that seat? Go for it. Yeah. And so the Pharisees in their culture, they wanted that. They loved that. And, in a, and when it got to a point where excuse me, in in banquets. At banquets, you would typically have an elevated area that would be above where most of us commoners would sit. And at that elevated area, the, the chief place, the, um, we might call it at a wedding, the uh, head table, head table. And the Pharisees love to be at the head table because you would invite the most distinguished people Who showed up that day. They would be the ones you'd put at the head table. And it says they loved it. They loved to show up at feasts. And they expected you to put them at the head table. So that they would again be noticed publicly. And so Jesus is describing these individuals. As people who love to be popular. They love to have praise. They love to be noticed by individuals. Does that still happen in our society? Are there individuals who are motivated. By what other people think of them. Are there individuals who are absolutely driven by popularity, by recognition, by accolades, and he says that's what these religious leaders were like. And he goes on to describe not only what they are like, but what they do. He says in the next phrase, they devour the widows' houses. You understand this that they who are the scribes, those who were the leaders, they were the individuals who were the legal advisors of the day. They were the ones who would help settle estates. They were the ones who would help say what we need to do when when we're taking care of legal matters. Well, the people who were in greatest need of somebody giving them assistance would be the widows, who would be at the, you know, at, at the mercies of everybody else, that didn't have somebody advocating for them. And he's making it clear that the religious leaders, instead of advocating for these widows, instead of trying to help them, what did they do? They took advantage of them. They would charge excessive fees. It was very commonly well known that what they would do is they would take their portions and get so, and get some major portions out of inheritances, out of the widows. Many of them became wealthy landowners by taking advantage of the poorer people who had to give up their properties because of all of the excessive... Uh, uh, excessive bills that were provided by the scribes who were supposed to be ministering to these people and jesus goes on and says something else about these individuals these individuals not only do they devour widows houses but what else does he say they in my my english says for a pretense they make long prayers somebody have a different translation for that phrase okay the idea is that play acting that what they would do is they would play act as if they are being very, very pious, very religious in their prayers. That all of a sudden the words that they would use, the way that they would pray, and how the, the, the length of what they would pray. Oh, I am such a prayer warrior. Aren't you impressed by how I can use certain twists of phrases and words and give the impression that we, that, that, that I pray hours and hours and a long time and I have this real close walk with the Lord. And Jesus says for a pretense, for an appearance. They go through this when it's not real. It's not in their regular normal life. They aren't praying that way in private. That is not their, they take one of the most intimate religious activities that we can do and they corrupt it for personal gain. And he says, that's what these guys are like. These guys that are leading you as a crowd, you, that, that are going to put pressure on you. These who are my enemies who are opposing me. These individuals, when it comes to their religiosity, it's phony, it is self-serving, it is very, very oriented to popularity and possessions. And by the way, does, does organized religion drift this way at times? That it's about making money? It's about people getting power. And so he's warned them of that. And then he says, by the way, by the way, just keep this in mind, everybody. If you're going to listen to these people who are dangerous people spiritually, who are phonies and frauds, these shall receive what? Greater damnation. They are going to be judged. To whom much is given? Yeah, these men know more. They know more than the most of you. They've been able to read Scripture. A lot of you at that time, a lot of you can't even read the Scriptures. You don't even have them in your hand. But these guys do. And I'm telling you as the judge, I'm telling you as the one who's going to hold them accountable, they are going to receive greater damnation. Beware of them. Beware of them. Be careful of them. Now, here's where we're at. The vast majority of us in this room... As we listen to this, we say, yeah, that's true, that's true. And I've already made a choice. I've already chosen to be on the side of Jesus. I've already chosen my religious affiliation. I've chosen to make Christ my Lord, my Savior. Praise the Lord that you and I have had that opportunity. Praise the Lord that we listened like some of those people did and gladly heard the word of God. And responded by making him our master. Recognizing that he was the promised one. He is, the, he is God-man. God in the flesh. That he came and that he is going to come back again as judge king. And some of us have made that decision. That we left some of those religious uh, affiliations. Where we were under religious leaders who were trying to manipulate and, you know, control us and take advantage of, you know, power and prestige. And so many of us in this room, we've been blessed. We have been deeply blessed by God's patience, God allowing us to hear the truth, somebody coming and sharing with us and giving us the opportunity to respond and to listen to Jesus Christ. But maybe, maybe there's one, two, three who have yet to determine what will you do with Jesus. Jesus in this last week is presenting himself as the candidate to be the savior of their soul. Jesus presents himself, even this evening, as the one who wants to be the savior of your soul. What have you done with Christ? What will you do with Christ? And beware, beware of those who would oppose you from following Christ. Those who would, who would want to disrupt your believing remember that they will receive greater damnation, and you don't want to be associated with them. You don't want to be listening to them. But those of us who have chosen, thank God. But let me take it a step further, okay? For those of us who have already made that critical decision that Jesus is laying out, then what do we do with it in our Christian walk? As we follow the Lord, who will we mimic? When we are going day by day, when we are trying to serve the Lord, when we are trying to live our life, our faith, do we have a tendency to start getting pharisaical and more concerned about popularity and image and prestige? Or are we more concerned with authenticity that when it comes to what we are, We are not pretending to be long in prayer. We are not pretending to be pious, but it's a reality in our life that we do pray. It's a reality in our life that we're trying to be sensitive. It's a reality that we're trying to understand the word of God. And we're seeking not to follow a tradition or what people say, but follow with our whole hearts. What did Jesus say? What did God mean in this passage, in this text? And that we are honestly open to the teachings of the Holy Spirit when we open up the word of God. Are we authentic? Are we following the master, Jesus Christ? Are we able to, to reveal and to share the word of God in truthfulness because we're trying to understand it? And that we will share it, and we, will, we will reach out to others, and the crowds that are around us, we will say, listen, you have a choice. You can believe in Christ or you can follow these people, but I care enough that I want to lay out this choice like Jesus did in a public fashion. He's laying out the choice and saying, you got a choice. Do you mimic Jesus Christ when it comes to prayer, when it comes to real close fellowship with the Lord, real prayer? Do you treat the widows the way Jesus would treat or do you seek to devour? Do you seek to minister rather than to be ministered unto the way Jesus did or are you interested in public recognition public gain financial financial reward by taking advantage of others there's a lot in this text the major thought is who are you listening to are you giving Christ the honor he deserves by paying attention but who are you following Who are you acting like? Chew on it. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. But make sure that you give Christ the honor that he deserves. And don't be caught off guard or led astray by those who are giving false truth. Father, help us in our prayer time to be effective. Help us to make a difference, we pray in Christ's name. You have several minutes.